Well, good evening. I am glad you're here. This is our second week of our study on the attributes of God. And so with your handout, we'll guide us through things tonight. But as we start, I want to look at big picture of why we're doing this. Last week, we went through a little bit of an introduction to the attributes of God and what we mean by that. But tonight, I want to remind us from Colossians 1. We actually prayed this over the senior Sunday morning and prayed it for ourselves as a congregation. But this has a lot to do with why we're even doing this study. This is Paul's prayer for the people at Colossae. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, you see it there on the front of your handout. And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you. So here's his prayer. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Friends, we are studying the attributes of God because we want to increase in the knowledge of God. We want to know God, and if we want to know God, we have to know him as he's revealed himself to us. We don't invent who God is. We don't try to project upon him what we want him to be. We must know him as he's chosen to reveal himself to us. And so this is my prayer for myself and for all of us as a church body, that as we go through the attributes of God on Wednesday nights this summer and fall, that it would help us know, increase the knowledge of who God is. Why is this so important? There's a great quote from A.W. Tozer there on the front, because an unknown God can neither be trusted, served, or worshipped. An unknown God can neither be trusted, served, or worshipped. Friends, if we want to be able to worship God and serve Him, if we want to be able to trust Him, we must know His character as He's chosen to reveal it to us. So that is why we're doing this study, and I hope that will encourage you to press on as we go through the summer months. I know in the past, Gateway's taken the summers off on Wednesday nights, but we're going to press on this year trying it different with meeting on Wednesday nights, and so I hope you'll be here for that as we dive into more about who God is. So turn the page. We're going to start on page two tonight. Just a quick review of what we talked about last week. Now, if you were not here last week, the audio of last week's session is on our Facebook page and as well as on our website on the bottom of the front page, but you can find it in both of those places. We're going to post all the audios. I know summer travels are coming up, and so if you miss a week, don't be like, well, I'm too far behind. I'm not going to come anymore. You can catch up online. We've got it all posted on there. As well, we'll post PDFs of the handouts, but if you missed last week, we do have some handouts left, so if you missed last week and want to listen to the audio of it, up front here on the front chairs will be a stack of the handouts. We're going to get those when we break them in our discussion time or before you leave, so you have that to go along with the audio recordings on that. But what is an attribute of God? Just to make sure we're all on the same page, so to speak. This, we looked at several different ways to approach it last week. This is a definition that I work off of. It was by a guy named W.T. Connor, who was a professor in the 1930s at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He said this, the attribute of God are those qualities or characteristics of the divine being by virtue of which he is distinguished from all created beings and without which he would not be worthy of the worship and service of man. Now, we dug into that last week and looked at that more phrase by phrase of what we're meaning by this. But the key thing here, these are his virtues. These are his characteristics, his attributes. And this distinguishes him from the rest of the created order. These are the things that make him worthy of worship, worthy of our service on that. And this is what my prayers, our study will do, is it will drive us to worship, drive us to better serve the Lord because we see him for who he really is. Now, last week we looked at the first attribute, and that's the unity of God. And the unity of God is basically this principle that we saw last week, that God is not divided into parts. And again, you'll get the handouts from last week if you missed and you can get caught up on that. But it's God is not divided into parts. That means that every attribute of God is completely true of God all of the time. So God doesn't change. God is unchanging. And praise God for that. Can you imagine if if God changed? How fearful that would be? I think I've mentioned that in the pulpit before on Sunday mornings. But how fearful that would be if God changed? You didn't know if he was in a good mood or a bad mood today. But God is unchanging. He's, all of his attributes are true all of the time. And so it debunks the idea that God was a God of wrath in the Old Testament, a God of grace in the New Testament. No, God has always fully been everything he fully is all of 
the time on that. We saw last week that means none of his attributes quarrel with each other. It's not like his grace and his wrath kind of fight, and let's see who wins today. It means no attribute can be separated from the others. We saw last week no attribute is more important, despite our culture's obsession with God's love. as the supreme attribute. It's not all of God's attributes are true all the time for him. They all are of equal importance, and it's God himself in his unity of wholeness that we try to know, we try to serve, and we try to worship there. So that leads us to our second attribute. So unity of God last week. Tonight we get to an attribute called God's independence. God's independence. This is what we would call an incommunicable attribute. Now, if you remember last week, there's two categories of attributes of God. There are incommunicable attributes. This is one of them. These are attributes that God does not share with us, his creation. These are attributes unique to God that he does not share with us in any way. God's independence is one of those. We'll see as we progress through our study, we'll get in a few weeks to the communicable attributes of God. Those are attributes he shares with us in part. God is holy. He calls us to be holy. God is love. We can be loving. God is a just God. He calls us to promote justice. You know, there's things that we can share in part, not in full, but in part. Those are communicable attributes. These first ones we're looking at are incommunicable. God does not share these attributes with us. And this is the first one, or the second one we're looking at, his unity and then his independence tonight on that. There's lots of other terms that you can use for the independence of God. Depending on who you read, you may come across these. So be familiar with these terms if you're reading. Sometimes it's called his self-existence. And you get that from what that means right there, the self-existence. He exists in and of himself. He's not dependent upon anyone else. I love this one because it's a word we all use every day, right? His aseity, right? This comes from a Latin word, say, and it basically means what I'm told because I don't know Latin. It means from himself and by himself. The God is from himself. He is not created. He is totally independent. He is by himself. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. He's God. He's totally independent. So it's called his aseity. Sometimes it's called his solitariness. And when I, get the, when I hear that one, I, I know where they're trying to get at, but that just sounds so lonely, isolated, but that's not what it's communicating. Solitariness, that, that God is different, fundamentally different than us. He doesn't need anyone, anything else. He is fully God on that. Likewise, his self-sufficiency. He's sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need anyone else, or sometimes it's just termed his selfhood. So these are all different terms. I personally like the term independence the best, so we'll be using that tonight, but know those other words could be used interchangeably there. Now, different people over the years have tried to explain this, this attribute of God. Now, like I mentioned last week, when we start with these incommunicable attributes of God, these attributes he does not share with his creation, we have a hard time with it. It's one thing for us to describe love, because, well, we kind of understand what that's like. We can describe what justice is or jealousy is. We can describe those attributes because we experience that. But these incommunicable ones, these ones that God does not share, we have a really hard time getting our minds around that. We'll talk about next week his eternality, that he has no beginning and no end. And that makes my mind hurt when I think about it. Because we, everything we know has a point of time beginning and a point of time end. We can't really grasp that. When we talk about his unity, that his attributes never fight. Well, our attributes fight. That's why we can be happy one day and mean the next. You know, we, our attributes fight against each other. We don't experience these incommunicable attributes like his independence. So these are hard for us to define. With that said, here's some ways people have attempted to define his independence. A.W. Tozer, great author, he said, God is self-existent selfhood. Now, if any of you wants to explain that one to me, I'll be glad to take you to coffee let you define that one for me. That's really philosophical. My brain's more of a science brain than a philosophy brain on that one. I look at it and go, his self-existent selfhood? What in the world is Tozer trying to say on that? I think we kind of get the idea of this, that he exists always. He always will exist. There's no calls behind him. He's just always there. He doesn't need anything, so he's a self-existent selfhood. Well, Herman Bavink, who was a Dutch theologian in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he said it this way, God is whatever he is by his own self 
or of his own self. I was like, what in the world is he trying to say with that? He is, everything is by his own self or of his own self. Like he doesn't, he doesn't come about by anyone else, any other causes. He doesn't exist of anything else. He's just God. He's just always there. You know, my, main, my mind starts to spin on some of those philosophical definitions. Novation, who was an early church father, I can understand him a little better. He says God has no origin. I'm like, ooh, I like the way this one's sounding better. I can follow this one and track this one. God has no origin, no beginning. There's no creator behind God. But that still seems to be lacking something. There's something bigger in what we're getting at with his independence than just that. And this is where I go back to Wayne Grudem, one of my favorite theologians. He defines God's independence this way. He says, God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. And that just kind of, I can connect with that. I can understand that. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. I love the balance in that. If God doesn't need us, yet he delights in his people. That He doesn't need anything from us or anywhere else. But yet he feels, he, he connects with his people in that. And so as you see on your handout there, what this means is if we want to think about our definition of the independence of God, it means God does not need any part of creation, including us, in order to exist or for any other reason. God does not need any part of creation, because that means us. God does not need us. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need the money of the world. He doesn't need the political powers of the world. He doesn't need armies. He doesn't need anything, including us, in order to exist or for any other reason. Even to accomplish his will, he doesn't even need us. He needs absolutely nothing from anyone else. He doesn't need anything for, from any other being or person for joy, for contentment, for help anyway. He is totally independent, totally self-sufficient. He's the total self-existent selfhood that we were seeing up there just a minute ago. That means he has an independent, unsupported existence. Those are the only words I can think of to describe it. He's independent and he's unsupported. Friends, if we are unsupported, we are in trouble. If we are unsupported, we're really lonely because we don't have community around us. If we are unsupported, we're making decisions about the wisdom of others, and we usually make bad decisions on that. If we are unsupported and isolated, we are in trouble. But God is unsupported, and that's a really good thing because he doesn't need anyone else. Again, this is not an attribute that he shares with us. Now, before we go on, I want to just mention briefly, it's not on your handout. When you read different people in the attributes of God, some people say this attribute here is independence is the most primary, the most important of all of the attributes. Well, I would kindly disagree with them. Like we talked about last week, the unity of God means God is fully holy, all of his attributes, all the time. I don't believe there's one attribute that trumps all the other attributes. They're all equally true of God all the time. And so God's independence, yes, tells us a lot about his nature, but so does his eternality. So does the fact he's all-powerful and all these other things we'll look at. I don't see this one as being trumping or being more important than all the others because of his unity. And that's why we started there last week. So where do we see this in Scripture? Where do we get this idea of God's independence? Because this is not just, again, like I mentioned last week, we're not projecting on God our human feelings, human descriptions. Where do we see this in divine revelation of God's character and his nature? Well, several places in the Bible. Look here on page three of your handout. We'll start working through a few texts here. First one from the Old Testament, Job 41.11. The context of this, by the way, is in Job 41, the Lord is talking with Job, and he's talking about Leviathan, which is fascinating if you want to go study that. And Think about this, the Leviathan, this giant creature that's in the scriptures there. And the whole content of this is Job has no ability to even grasp Leviathan, much less God. So this is the context of this. So in Job 41.11, God says to Job, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. 
So if we can't even grasp and get around and even contain this, this creature called Leviathan, how much more can we not even contain God, can grasp God, and even be able to do anything for God on that? It says so clearly, who has first given to me? Friends, we cannot give God anything that he's not first given to us. We have absolutely nothing we can give to God that he has not first given to us. He is the giver of all things. And this is, can be a scary reality for people. Because some people like to try to bargain with God. Okay, now God, if you will just answer this prayer this way, then I will give this money back to you for your causes. Well, where do we get the money from in the first place? God gave it to us. We can't bargain with God with our money. It already belonged to him in the first place. He just chose to entrust it to us. Some people will bargain with God with their lives. Now, God, if you will just do this for me, then I will go on that trip. I will go help that person. I will whatever. We can't even bargain with our lives, friends. We didn't choose to be here. God ordained it. God's the one who sustains our lives. He takes his hand off of us. We die. Like, literally, God sustains every part of us in this. We can't even bargain to, to God with our, our lives. We can't bargain with our time. Now, God, if you'll just do this, I'll commit more time to reading your word. He's the one who gave us the time. We have absolutely nothing to use to try to manipulate God or bargain with God because he has given us everything. Job 41, 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever's under the whole heaven, that's everything, is mine. Our money, our time, our health, our very lives are gifts to God from us. We cannot use them to bargain with God because they're not ours in the first place. We would have nothing if he didn't give it to us. So God is independent. He gives to us. We don't give to him. Psalm 50, 8 through 15, the next passage there. Actually, I think I started back in verse 7 there on your handout. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your foals. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. And I love this, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine. Do we eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice and thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God's rebuking his people, not for offering sacrifices, but for the attitude behind it. Somehow they were thinking they were giving to God, that God somehow needed their sacrifices. God didn't need their sacrifices. God needs absolutely nothing. Verse 10, I love verse 10 here. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. God doesn't need anything. Even if he, could, he couldn't need anything, but even if he did need something, he wouldn't tell us because we couldn't do anything to fix it in the first place. God is independent. He needs absolutely nothing. Isaiah 40, 10 through 13. The, the context here is he's comforting Israel and also showing them the folly of their idol worship. So as he's doing that, he's going to do it by showing them his bigness. So listen to how he does that. Isaiah 40, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with the young. So this is what he's going to do for his people. Now, how do we know he can do that? Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor is beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. 
They are counted by him as a less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Man, God doesn't need anything here. I mean, he doesn't need our counsel. I mean, the question that basically asks here is, who can teach God something? And the answer should be obvious to us. Hopefully we all figured out no one. None of us can teach God anything. Which, by the way, just side note here, not on your handout. Realize there's a heresy that's developed in modern thought in some churches. And that is that God is in process. They call it process theology. And it teaches that God is constantly learning new things. And so if you believe process theology, sometimes it's called open theism. God is open. He's still learning. He's still growing. He's still in process. And in that situation, you pray to inform God of things to let him know what's going on. Friends, that's heresy. God doesn't need us to pray to tell him what's going on. God already knows what's going on. That's not the point of prayer. Now, that's a subject for a whole other day. But God is not in process. What of us can give any understanding to God? Like, God, did you realize that happened over there? God's not like, oh, thanks. I missed that one, you know. We don't want to follow a God if he's missing something. God knows everything. He understands everything. He's already ordained the ends from the beginning. He needs absolutely nothing. And to show us he needs nothing, he makes it pretty clear here. Verse 15. Behold, the nations, that's the nations altogether, are like a drop from a bucket. Because you think about military fights that go on and you have conflict between U.S. military and other militaries. You put all the militaries, all the might of all the nations of the world together, and the God is like, drip. Okay, they're gone. I mean, God is that big... And that independent, he needs nothing. I mean, the nations and everything the world could offer him in terms of power is like a drop falling off the bucket. Now, in case we miss it, here at Isaiah, it goes on here. The nations like a drop from a bucket, and they are counted as the dust on the scales. So it's not just they're a drop. How do we get smaller than that? The, everything the world could offer God is just like dust on the scales that would just blow away on that. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And then verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as, if nothing's not low enough, as less than nothing. Like, can we get any clearer in this? God needs nothing. All the power, all the wealth of the entire world is as less than nothing and emptiness to him. Which leads us, again, this is incommunicable. We don't experience this. Verse 18, to whom then will you compare, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? The answer there is nobody. We can't. He's God. We're not. He's unique. There's no one besides him or like him in that. Let's go into the New Testament then. And again, I put there the, on your handout there on page three, it's important. Remember, God does not change. He has always fully all these attributes all of the time. So again, the idea that God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament becomes a God of grace and mercy in the New Testament, it's just wrong. God is fully all the time all of his attributes, wrath, jealousy, justice, goodness, love, mercy, all that together all the time is fully always God. He doesn't change from Old Testament to New Testament. He's always, always God and always is the same. So his attributes do not change. The first one I want you to see is Acts 17, 24 through 28. I love this text here. This is an amazing text from my favorite passage in Acts. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since, it gives to, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Friends, we can do nothing to contribute to God. Verse 25 or verse 24, he made the world and everything in it. So again, anything we have, friends, health, life, Material possessions, anything we have is not because we made it, 
God made us. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, not us. He does not live in anything we can make. But verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Because there's nothing we can do that God needs us to do for him, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So again, we need him desperately for everything. He needs nothing from us on this. That even means, friends, our knowledge of him is his gift to us. We can't even manufacture knowledge of him or get to him. He has to give us everything, including even the revelation of him. We need him, not the other way around. Then Romans 11, verses 34 through 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or whom has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Well, he partially quotes Isaiah 40 that we already saw here. But again, it reminds us that we can't even know the mind of the Lord unless he chooses to reveal it to us. Who of us can be his counselor? Again, none of us, friends. We don't go to pray. We don't pray. We don't approach prayer. Again, that's a whole series for a whole other time. But we don't pray to inform God and counsel him how he should do things. God knows what he does. We pray to commune with God. We pray to fellowship with God. And we pray as best a child can, talking to his father, say, as best I understand things, this is the way I like to see it done, Lord, but not my will, but your will be done. We can't counsel God. God knows what needs to be done. Who can give God a gift? We don't, we don't have anything that we can give to God. So the common theme in all these texts right here on page 3 is God needs nothing from us, and God gains nothing from us. God needs nothing from us, and God gains nothing nothing from us. Now, there's two more texts I want you to see. Now, why didn't I put these in with the Old Testament text we just looked at? Because the ones we just looked at are very direct. Like, it's very clear in the text God's independence. These are more implicit. These are more implied by what the text says. So, I've kind of pulled these out separately. First is one of the names of God. Remember last week I said we learn about God's nature in three ways. Obviously, we see it in his words and actions in the scripture, but we see it in his names in his images, when he's described for us, if he's like a shepherd or he's got us under his wings, or images to help us understand. So his names, his images, and his attributes. We see all those in Scripture. All those describe for us who God is. Here is one of his names that tells us a lot about his attributes and who he is. Exodus three fourteen, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now there's a lot that's in this text, but what we want to see tonight is the word I am means I am the self-existent one. God is just, I am. He doesn't need anything else. He doesn't have to explain anything else. He doesn't owe anyone anything. He just, he just is. He's just God. He is the great I am, the self-existent one right there. God's existence and his character are determined by him alone, nothing else. Not who we want him to be. It's who he has chosen to be, who he himself is. But we see this idea of his independence in the first verse of the Bible as well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, where am I going with this? We'll get more into this verse next week, because next week we get to the fact that God's eternal. No beginning, no end. Always existed, always will. And if you have trouble sleeping at night, just try to think on that some more, and it'll keep you awake even longer. That there is absolutely no beginning and no end to God. That a hundred trillion years ago, God was still there and was very content. A hundred trillion years from now, God will still be there. Like, there's no beginning, no end. Our brains have a hard time comprehending that. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means when God created the world, so let's go back as well. In Malachi 3, 6, we're told that God does not change, okay? So when God created the world, before he created the world, before he made the world, before he made the universe, before he made the stars, before he made heaven, before he made the angels, before he made us, God did not need anything. God did not make the world because he needed us. God, made, God was completely sufficient in and of himself. And so the creation of the world added nothing to God. Now, that one sink in. The creation of the world added nothing to God. The creation of heaven, the creation of the stars, the creation of the universe, the creation of us, all this added nothing to God because God is 
unchanging on this. God could have chosen to continue alone for all eternity without creating a universe, a world, or people, and he'd been very content to do so if he had chosen to do so. God did not make the world because he needed anything. If God made the world or the universe because he needed something, he would not be self-sufficient. He would cease to be God. God did not need his creation, but yet he chose in his kindness to make creation. He chose by his own will to make creation. I want to give you a quote here from A.W. Pink. See if we can get our minds around this. There was a time, if time could be called, when God in the unity of his nature, though subsisting equally in three divine persons, dwelt all alone. In the beginning, God. There was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to him his praises. No universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one, but God. And that not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting. During a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. Now, my brain hurts trying to think about that. You realize that, that 700 trillion years ago, there was no heaven, there was no earth, there were no angels, there was nothing but God. Father, Son, Spirit, God, nothing else. There was no time, there was no gravity, there was absolutely nothing, just God. And God could have continued that way forever, would have been perfectly happy and fine if he had chosen to. He is, like it says here, God was alone, but he wasn't lonely, y'all. He was self-contained. He was self-sufficient, and he was self-satisfied in need of nothing. God didn't make the world because he needed something. Now, this is hard for my mind to grasp. Yeah, this is an incommunicable attribute of God. And this says, it says on your handout there next, God's independence is so radically different from anything we can experience. Friends, because there's nothing else that we know of this independence like this. Everything else we experience has some type of origin to it. So when you see a tree, you don't think, man, that tree's always been there. You know that a seed fell on the ground at one time. And a seed grew. There was an origin to that tree. Well, what about that seed? Where did it come from? Well, it, came from, it fell out of another tree. So it had an origin. And so everywhere you go back, there's origin, origin, origin of everything we know. You hear the birds chirping. You know, it's almost summertime. You hear the birds outside your window early in the morning chirping in the morning air, waking you up instead of your alarm clock. You hear the birds chirping, and you're like, I wonder where that baby bird came from. I guess that baby bird's always been a baby bird. Well, no. The baby bird came from an egg. Or where the egg came from, well, it was laid by another bird. Or where did that bird come from? Well, that bird had an origin as well. It was a baby one time. It came from an egg, which came from a bird, which came from an egg, which came from, you know, on and on it goes. Everything has an origin that we experience on that. But God, there's no origin. There's no beginning point. There's no starting point. He's just always God. There is no origin for us on this. A.W. Tozer says, origin is a creature word. Friends, you can't use the word origin with God because God has no origin, no beginning. We'll get more into that next week. But it's something we experience. The origin is something known to his creation. So again, Tozer says, He, God, is the cause of all things. And I love this phrase. He's the uncaused cause. God is the uncaused cause. God has no beginning, but everything else we know is because God caused it to happen. He chose to. He didn't have to. He self-contained. He didn't need anything he made. He didn't need the birds in the tree. He didn't need the, the acorns to form trees. He just chose because he liked it. That's how he wanted to make it. He didn't need that. He is the uncaused cause of all things. And friends, if that's hard for us to understand, that's a good thing. Because God is not a God of our own imagination. God is a God as he's chosen to reveal himself to us. And if he was a product of our imagination, we would not have created a God with complexities like this that we have trouble explaining. When we get to mysteries and stuff like this, it's good for our brains because it shows us that God is much bigger 
than us. Now, there's a lot of profound implications that come out of this attribute of his independence. Number one is that God must be eternal. By that I mean God can, and we'll get to this next week, God can have no origin. If God has an origin, he was caused by something else. Therefore, he is not God. He's not supreme. So God has to be eternal. He cannot have a beginning. If he has a beginning, he's not self-sufficient. Number two on the next page. This is huge in our culture today. God did not make people because he was lonely, because he needed anything. Friends, all across our culture are people who think that God made the world because God was lonely up in heaven by himself. And that's ridiculous. God did not make the world because he needed the world. He was independent. He was self-sufficient. I mean, just listen, flip through the Christian radio stations. Listen to the popular songs. It makes it sound somehow like God was so lonely up in heaven, so he made us because he needed us. And that's just simply not true. God chose to make us, but he didn't need us. He didn't make us because he was somehow deficient in himself. God needed absolutely nothing. Ephesians 1.11 tells us pretty plainly, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God made us because of the counsel of his will. God made us because he sovereignly chose to do so, not because he needed anything. When Bruce Ware was here a few weeks ago, he taught us about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God had perfect community within himself 700 billion trillion years ago. He didn't need anything else. He had perfect community in and of himself, perfectly self-sufficient, perfectly self-joyful, not that he needed nothing, but yet he created us out of the counsel of his will by his own sovereign purpose for his own good pleasure. Now, again, there's more implications. Number three here, everything other than God was created by God. Thus, he owns everything. So, again, he's the uncaused cause. Everything else we experience, life, breath, air, gravity, all these are things God created. He could have made a world without gravity. We could all be floating around for Bible study tonight. If we wanted to do it, he could do it. God can do whatever God wants to do. He created everything we know we experience, even time. There was no time before God created time. Try to get your mind around that one when you go to sleep tonight. That God is outside of time. Even time is a creation of God that he is outside of. Psalm 24, 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. That's us. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Literally, God owns everything. The people in the world, the earth, the fullness, everything the world contains, he owns. And then we see that again in Psalm 50. We already read it back on page 2 of our handouts, or sorry, page 3 of our handout, we already read Psalm 50, but back in that, verse 10 of Psalm 50, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. God is claiming ownership over all parts of creation. So this point number 3 here on page 5, if God owns everything, friends, that means we talk often of my possessions, my house, my car, my whatever, my clothes, and since they're ours, but not really, we didn't create them. God made it all. They really belong to God. God claims ownership over everything and all of creation. So it's really God's house and God's car and God's clothing and whatever else it is. God's dog, God's cat, God's hamster, whatever you have. It ultimately belongs to God. He is the owner of everything on that. If he didn't choose to make those things, we could not have it. No matter, my kids really want a hamster right now. They've been trying to convince me to get them a hamster or a gerbil and all of this. Well... Even if, if there was no such thing as a hamster or a gerbil, I couldn't go create one. I can only get them one, which we're not going to. I see Julia looking at me over there. We're not getting them one right now. But oh, I hear owls across the room. So. But, um, but, you know, I can't create one. The only reason I could potentially think about giving them a hamster or a gerbil is because God has already made a hamster or a gerbil. And my kids draw some creative animal monster and say, Daddy, go get one of these for me. 
I can't will it and make it. I have nothing that God has not already made to be able to pass on to anyone else. Again, we could talk a lot about stewardship because of that. Number four, when we give something back to God, we are only giving Him what He already gave us. Friends, if we think we're doing so good giving our time back to God because we give God an hour a week, we're not giving Him anything that wasn't already His. He's the one who created time. He's the one who put us here for such a time as this. When we give Him back our time, we're only giving Him what He already first gave us. Our money, if we're giving it to someone in need, giving it to the church, giving it to other kingdom purposes, He doesn't need it. He has all the money in the world. But He's called us to be part of that. We're going to talk more about stewardship on another time. That would be a whole other series on that. When we give our money back to God... It's nothing that we create on our own. It's only what he first gave us that we're now returning to him. It's a stewardship issue. We're stewards of the things he's given to us, and so we give them back to him. Number five, then, God can be enriched by no one. Friends, we do not enhance God. We do not make him better. God is not somehow more joyful, more satisfied because of us. God is God, and he does not enhance by anything we do. That means we do not worship God to enhance God. The reason we gather on Sunday mornings to sing His praises is because He already is fully glorious. Because He already is fully great. We are recognizing that we are not adding to God when we worship God. He is already fully glorious, already fully great, already fully splendid. And we're simply acknowledging we do not enhance and we do not add to Him by our worship. God enters the world not in need. God enters the world as the Lord of all. And we come to Him in our need. He is the one who has no need. But this one is, is where this attribute is so incommunicable. Number six, for us to want to be independent like God is sin. It's good for God to be independent. In fact, if he was not independent, he would not be God. But friends, for us to want to be independent like God is a sin. When we want to be on the throne, when we want to be independent with no authority over us, we want things just our way, it's sinful for us. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Now, now first of all, the historical context of this, if you think back to our previous study of how to understand the Bible... This is speaking particularly about the king of Babylon. And so it's dealing with a very proud human individual who's the king of Babylon. And you'll see how his desire to be independent is sinful. Now, a lot of people also understand this to be an image to help us understand the fall of Satan on that. So we can get into a whole series on spiritual warfare. Some people think this refers to both the king of Babylon and to Satan's fall, to Lucifer's fall when he rebelled in heaven. Other people think it's just referred to the king of Babylon. That's another subject we can discuss another day on that. But Isaiah chapter 14 how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mounts of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's someone who wants to be independent. And God condemns that here. The king of Babylon fell because of his sin. And Satan, which this is indicative of what happened with Lucifer in heaven, whether or not that's him or not, again, is a discussion for another day. Regardless, that is what we know about how sinful that type of independence is. For God to be independent is good. For us to be independent is a sin. But friends, there's a balance in this that we must not lose on this, and that's number seven. God does not need us, but yet God chooses to delight in us. God does not need us, but God chooses to delight in us. These are incredible truths here from Isaiah and Zephaniah. Isaiah 62, God's talking to his people. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the, a diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord, listen to this, the Lord delights in you. 
and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God rejoices over his people. Zephaniah 3, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Do you catch that, friends? God sings over you. This God who needs absolutely nothing sings over you. That's why when we define God's independence, he doesn't need anything, but yet we said, yet we in the rest of creation can glorify him. We can bring him joy. Friends, God does not need anything, yet in the way he's so orchestrated in his providence, the way the universe works, he, can, he takes joy in his people. He doesn't need us, but yet he delights in us. It is the way that he has chosen to work. So don't lose, again, there's a balance here. God needs nothing, yet he's chosen to delight in us. That's God's independence, that God needs absolutely nothing from us in his being or for anything else, yet he chooses to delight in his people. So I got some things I want you to talk about in our groups tonight, but we're going to break into small groups in just a minute. Here's seven questions for you to think about in your groups tonight. Number one, why is independence good in God's nature, but sinful in our nature? So you'll have fun talking about that in your group. Why is it good? Why do we rejoice and are thankful that God is independent? Why is it sinful for us to try to be independent? Number two, review the quote from A.W. Pink on page four. So jump back over to page four, and there was that whole quote there about the last line. During a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. So if God was self-satisfied for all eternity, 100 trillion years ago, God was satisfied, needed nothing, then why did he make the world? So if God needed nothing, there's a reason he made the world. It wasn't because he had a need. Why did he make the world and why did he make us if he needed nothing? Number three, if we have received everything from God, that means we have nothing of our own. That also means we have nothing with which to bargain with God. You know, I mentioned that we don't even have our lives to offer God. If you'll do this, I'll give you my life. God, friends, we have nothing to offer to God on that in bargaining terms. So how does that truth make you feel? Number four, review those last two verses we read, Isaiah 62 and Zephaniah 3.18. that we just read those verses about him singing over us. How do those verses encourage you? Number five, and these next three questions are going to be something, or the next two questions we're going to ask basically every week with every attribute. Number five, how does the attribute of God's independence or self-sufficiency help us have faith? How does this discussion of his self-sufficiency, his independence, strengthen our faith? Number six, how does this attribute of God's independence affect our attitude and approach to prayer? Friends, what does this tell us? How does this attribute inform how we should approach God in prayer? And then lastly, this impacts community. How does recognizing self-sufficiency as something good in God's nature but sinful in our nature affect how we relate to each other in community? So again, that's what we're going to talk about most every week in these attributes. How does this attribute affect our faith? How does it affect our prayers? And how does it affect how we treat one another in community? So I want to split up into several groups here. I see Greg here, if you'll lead a group for us. Um, Dave, you're back here for a group. Um... Steve, I think you, you do a group for us. I think three may be enough tonight. Yes, yeah, so let's, let's divide up into those three groups. If any of the groups are too big, we can split out again if we need to. But let's start, see if we can gear up around those three guys there and work through these questions. God bless y'all.